This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, January 15th. I'm Rachel Del Judas. And I'm Daniel Davis. Well, in charity work, the numbers are not everything. Meals and shelter can be provided, and those are important. But as our guest today says, the goal needs to be more. In addition to short-term relief, charities need to help people get back on their feet and become self-sufficient. How? Rachel sat down recently with James Whitford to ask that question. James directs a nonprofit called Watered Gardens, which aims to lift its participants out of poverty. We'll share their conversation. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. Nancy Pelosi is finally pulling the trigger. The House Speaker set up a vote on Wednesday to send the articles of impeachment to the Senate. That decision follows weeks of delay and mounting criticism from both Republicans and Democrats. The Senate would then proceed with the trial in a matter of days. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's plan is to begin the trial and consider witnesses later, rather than up front. Republicans currently lack the 51 votes needed to dismiss the impeachment charges outright, but many expect the trial to end either in an acquittal or a conviction. President Trump says he'll be diverting another $7.2 billion to build the border wall. According to the Washington Post, that's five times more than what Congress permitted Trump to allocate toward the wall in the 2020 budget. This additional funding would be redirected for military construction projects to enable 885 miles of new border wall by spring 2022, notably more than the 509 miles the Trump administration has earmarked for the border wall. This comes one week after the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals allowed a similar diversion of funds to go ahead. Britain, France, and Germany have triggered a dispute mechanism with Iran as part of the Iran nuclear deal, formally accusing Iran of violating its terms. The U.S. officially withdrew from the deal in 2018, but European countries remain in it, as does Iran. In the wake of recent tensions with the U.S., Iran has been rolling back its compliance with the deal, even announcing publicly that they were enriching more uranium than the deal allows for. In response, Britain, France, and Germany said in a joint statement, We do not accept the argument that Iran is entitled to reduce compliance with the JCPOA. Our three countries are not joining a campaign to implement maximum pressure against Iran. Our hope is to bring Iran back into full compliance with its commitments under the JCPOA. Iran has made several arrests following the downing of a Ukrainian airliner last week by Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which killed all 176 passengers. According to Reuters, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani said Tuesday that there would be an investigation into the unforgivable error. Iran's apology came after it initially denied shooting down the plane. The regime says the plane was mistakenly shot down as its military was on high alert after the U.S. killed its top military leader, Qassem Soleimani, in a drone strike. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau appeared to cast some blame on President Trump Tuesday for the downing of the Ukrainian jet, which killed all passengers, including 57 Canadians. Here's what he said in an interview with Global News Television. Do you think that the people who died on that plane are collateral damage in the tensions between Iran and the U.S.? I think think if there were no uh, 
tensions if there was no uh, escalation recently in the region, uh, those uh, Canadians would be right now home with their families. Uh, this is something that happens when you have conflict and war. Innocents bear the brunt of it, and it is a reminder why all of us need to work so hard on de-escalation, on moving forward to reduce tensions and find a pathway that doesn't involve further conflict and killing. Up next, Rachel's interview with charity leader James Whitford. If you're tired of high taxes, fewer health care choices, and bigger and bigger government, it's time to partner with the most impactful conservative organization in America. We're the Heritage Foundation, and we're committed to solving the issues America faces. Together, we'll fight back against the rising tide of homegrown socialism, and we'll fight for conservative solutions that are making families more free and more prosperous. But we can't do it without you. Please join us at heritage.org. We are joined today on the Daily Signal podcast by James Whitford. He's the executive director of Watered Gardens, an organization that serves the poor and homeless. James, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Rachel. Great to be here. So just to kick us off, to get started, can you tell us a little bit about your organization, Watered Gardens, and why your organization was founded? Well, sure. Uh, My wife and I co-founded Watered Gardens in 2000, so it's been about 20 years now, and it just started out of compassion. So we had uh, uh, our faith in Christ and our heart for people and wanted to put that to work, and so we began a small little outreach center that has grown over the years, and of course, along the way, we've learned a lot as well. So in your organization, you just kicked off an initiative called True Charity, where you spend time talking about the problem charities commonly face, where they tend to value outputs rather than outcomes. Can you tell us more about that and why you started this initiative in the first place? Well, sure. So I I think just going back to the idea of learning curves along the way in mission work and realizing that there are some competitive models out there that uh, where you know needs are being met, but people aren't actually being really helped. They're not being empowered. And uh, one of the things that we talk about in True Charity is that uh, at some point in our compassionate care for people, challenge is needed. If we're going to help people move from relief to development, if we want to get them out of the trap of cyclic relief, we're going to have to implement challenge at some point to really help people grow and develop. But when you have charity out there, it could be state-funded charity, it could be other types of charity, where uh, there's no challenge at all. It's just a low-hanging fruit. Then missions like mine that know how to empower people and want to do that, uh, it becomes harder for us. And so what do we do? Well, we launched an initiative called the True Charity Initiative just to help leaders begin to rethink what charity really should look like and that it's got to be more than a handout. And one of those components, which you just touched on, is this idea that we need to quit measuring just outputs but also outcomes, which are more important. This is the impact that we're having in the lives of people and families that we're serving beyond just the number of meals that we served or how much we gave away. In one of these videos highlighting the True Charity Initiative, you mentioned that if you really want to help the poor and if charities really want to help the poor, we need to ask ourselves the question, what are we hoping for in the long run or what is this long-term goal? Why do you think charities have 
lost sight of this goal, it seems many of them have. Well, I think it feels good to, to, to meet a need. And so that's what happens at the, at the transactional counter of a charity and people coming in, or maybe, maybe it's a church or some agency, but there's a need being expressed. And so uh, we see it, uh, it's, it's, you know, and then we want to meet that need and we feel good about it. And then we, we call it quits. That's the end of that. But we've got to be asking the question, what are we really hoping for in the long run? Someone can come in and say, I'm hungry. And we can say, well, we want to feed you. But is that what we're really hoping for in the long run? So we've got to be thinking about the bigger picture of how are we doing with helping people get back to work? How are we doing in helping people reconnect with their family or to establish new and healthy connections in their community? So there are outcomes that we've got to look for in our charity work. In your organization, you've also highlighted that nonprofits as well as government help agencies often measure their success by what they give rather than the lives that they change. And so I'm curious, in your vast experience working in your organization, how does your organization have a vision to fix this specifically? Well, it really is the expansion of our True Charity initiative. And so uh, True Charity came out of this, uh, you know, we were beating our heads against a wall trying to figure out, gosh, you know, how is it that we can help a community get better at really empowering the poor? And uh, and so we launched this initiative, and we think that we, we need to communicate those principles really nationally. We want to help organizations, nonprofits, churches, and charities across the nation rethink what charity really is. We've got to go beyond just good intentions. We've got to couple our good heart, our compassion with wise thought. And when we begin to do that, it's going to look differently. We're not going to just feel good about giving something away. Uh, We're not just going to be counting output. We're really going to want to measure our long-term impact with people and the families that we're serving. So one of the practical programs that your organization does offer is something called a Worth Shop that teaches residents about your program, about work, you know, how they can build room and board, sell things. I want to hear about that. So can you tell us about this program and how you use it to value, you know, what you're doing instead of like the things that you're yeah, doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I read a book called Toxic Charity by an author, Robert Lupton, and in it he talks about five steps to dependency. He says if you give something to somebody once, they'll have an appreciation for it. If you give it to them again, they'll have an anticipation. You'll do it a third time. If you give it a third time, they'll have an expectation. A fourth time, they'll feel entitled. And a fifth time, they'll be dependent on you for it. So five steps to dependency, appreciation, anticipation, expectation, entitlement, and dependency. Well, we were seeing that. So we were guilty of that in those uh, first years of our ministry and thought, we've got to change that somehow and realize that we were not valuing or esteeming the person as a person of capacity and potential and ability. We were caught up in that trap of seeing only the need or the broken part of the person. Well, we switched our model and we we began what we call a worth shop. We call it a worth shop because we believe that work awakens worth in people's lives. And so now, uh, whether it's, you know, for clothing or, or food or even a meal ticket for the evening or a night of shelter, people are crafting goods that go to market in our worth shop so they can earn things they need. The beauty of that is that they become partners in our mission. They're not just the recipients of someone's benevolence. And so value and worth and dignity are awakened in that individual. And we think that it's one of the reasons why we have such a good outcome with employment. If We all want to see people go to work, but if you want to see people go to work, our suggestion is you start with it. 
There's no reason why people who are able to do something shouldn't do, you know, something for what it is that they need. And it sounds like you've essentially found a really successful way to have people who are part of your program and taking, you know, being involved actually take ownership so that they're not, they don't have to stay involved in a sense. Well, well, absolutely. So you've got a, a person needs to realize that they have the capacity to create and to do and to produce and to earn. And once you learn, hey, I've got the ability to earn my way, that's a, an incredibly dignifying feeling. And it launches a person from there into employment and independence. So, James, your organization, Watered Gardens, they also offer a program called Project Worth, where you provide the homeless with ways to be creative and build a craft. I know this is probably tied to what we were just talking about, but are there any differences there between Project Worth and the workshop, and how does that also work together? Well, the workshop is just, it's a building. It's a part of our uh, one of our campuses of ministry where all of that work is happening. Project Worth is the uh, the principle, the philosophy behind that. And so uh, you, you could be a community guide. It could be some other social enterprise, but it's the idea that work awakens worth. And we want to make sure that uh, we're doing everything we can to test a person's ability to help themselves before we just jump in and offer that help. And that's that's where we're missing it nationwide right now, really, is uh, we might see a person, we might feel sorry for them, and we might offer uh, some help, but we're not testing that individual to see what they can do for themselves. And, and that's something we've got to start doing if we're really going to empower people and help them elevate themselves out of poverty. You also have an incredible outreach that's called Forge, and this outreach is to homeless men, and it helps them find and develop virtue and a strong work ethic. And what all does Forge do? Can you tell us about it? And have you seen specific results in some of the men that you've worked with through this program? Sure. Well, this is our Center for Virtue and Work. It's a long-term program uh, where uh, men are going in through a number of different phases. So there's a service phase where they're working alongside partners in our uh, employees in our mission, so they have a specific role. Then they move into an education phase where they go through classes like government and legal living, stewardship and economics. Seven Steps to Christian Maturity. So there are different classes that they're a part of. Then they go into a work readiness phase where they're going through computer literacy training and mock interviews, resume writing, soft skill development. Um, and they're learning about their own, their own value of work that they can offer to a company to improve the company's value. So we go through a lot of stuff like that before they then launch into a work internship where they're uh, actually going to work with partner employers in our city. The, the, the exciting thing about this is that all of these men who come into the program give up all uh, government assistance. And so they're, they're making a big decision to uh, take, take a, a more difficult and more challenging road uh, that leads to independence and, and flourishing. And there are many great stories to share with you. Uh, maybe I could just share one real quickly. There was a guy who came in who um, – a tall man, mid-30s, shaking, addicted, living on the streets, wanted to talk about getting into the program. Um, his name was John. And so John had, uh, at that point, food stamps. He had an early uh, early SSI disability check and subsidized housing, but he, he was not a healthy or happy individual, and he really wanted to get into the program. We told him, uh, you have to give all that up if you want to come into this program. And he did. He, he, he actually gave it up. In fact, later on, he said one of the most difficult decisions of his entire life was giving up that government package, he called it, to come into Forge. But 
He had had a very bad life as a kid, and uh, certainly the state had seen him as irreparably broken and forevermore a charity case. But John today is an over-the-road truck driver, completely independent, and on no government subsidy at all. And so it's a great story of how uh, we can be pulled in one direction, but boy, if we can grab folks out of that and head them in the right direction, John's a good example. Wow, that is an incredible story, James. Thank you so much for sharing that. So you mentioned that the people, the men who get involved in Forge, they have to give up all government assistance. And you'd also mentioned to me that Water Gardens has actually never received public funding and that your guiding documents say that you are committed never to receive any kind of public funding. Why has Water Gardens taken this stand and why is it so important? Well, for a number of reasons, but number one, we are $22 trillion in debt. And, uh, you know, looking at uh, the 2019 federal budget, it was about $996 billion that was uh, designated to go and help the poor in our country today. And uh, so I don't think we can afford public funded solutions any longer. We're going to have to find ways to do things from a local, uh, privately funded uh, level. And so we're, we're committed to that. But also organizations that are taking a lot of government money are government dependent and typically produce people who are also government dependent. And we want to help people move away from uh, from government support to flourish as independent individuals. Um, and so if, if we're asking them to do that, we need to do that as well. Uh, but So we're just – we're committed to private funding. We think that uh, charity, if it's true charity, Rachel, it's going to be because there are people who say, you know what? I want to help right here in my community, and they're willing to give. But we would not think true charity to be something that is uh, funded through taxpayer dollars. Some taxpayer paying for something that they don't even know about is not a charitable thing. That's a powerful stand that you all take. Thank you so much for sharing that. A common thread that uh, we often see in society a lot with those who are homeless is addiction as well as mental health issues. And I'm curious, does Water Gardens address these specific struggles in any way that these homeless people tend to face in the outreach that all of you give? Well, sure. And it's important to understand that when we talk about mental health problems, there's a great gradation of that, right? So severe, severe mental health problems. We're talking about schizophrenia and things. We're going to have to refer some of our clients on. There are others that will respond to lay counseling and do very well. And so there's a, there's a, there's a large wide array of mental health issues. Uh, addiction as well. Of course, we offer a recovery program. And so there, there are different things that we do for addiction, but some people may need truly like hospitalized treatment for that. I think more importantly is to understand why is all this happening? I mean, you know, we've got 553,000 homeless people and a lot of them are struggling with addiction and mental health issues. And I think it's important that we look at the pathology that's under the diagnosis, right? We've got a diagnosis of homelessness or poverty, but what's the cause? What's going on? And it really is a breakdown of the American family. I'm convinced that uh, for a number of reasons where we're seeing, uh, you know, family torn apart or then leaves children, you know, that are neglected or abused that then grow up and end up with severe mental health or addiction issues on the streets and maybe at missions like mine. And so uh, we have to really think about what are we doing in our society today to strengthen the family unit and are there things that we're doing that are – uh, dividing the family. And again, back to the idea of a paternal state that's, quote, caring for the poor, 
often creates a disincentive for families to stay together. In fact, let me share one quick story with you. I met a young man named Seth sitting in our mission. I didn't know who he was. I just went down, sat down, was having a meal with him, talking with him about what was going on and why he was here. He was a resident at that point in our mission. And he said, uh, well, I went to an agency and, you know, they told me that if I was homeless for, you know, a particular period of time, maybe I would qualify for subsidized housing. So he at that point was living with his mom and his grandmother, was pulled away from them to come and be at the mission so that he might qualify for federal housing. And so there is a, a an example, and there are many of those, where uh, when we land these big government grants in our community and we cast a net to try to find people to then fill the seats, it actually creates a perverse incentive that divides family ties and community ties that are vital for civil society today. So your organization is receiving the 2019 World News Group Hope Award for your effective work that you've been doing. Can you tell us a little bit about the award and why you were chosen to receive it? And also congratulations. That's so well, awesome. Well, thanks for that. I, I don't know a whole, a whole lot about the award other than uh, there's a, a nice financial gift that comes with it. and um, But I, I know that uh, World News Group looked at uh, hundreds of nonprofits, um, I think that are all, they're all privately funded and um, you know went through whatever evaluation they do and we ended up winning that award this year and uh, yeah it's quite quite an honor to to be uh, to receive this and so um, very very honored and you know it's it's a team of people we have you know hundreds of volunteers that are really giving a great significant portion of their lives at our mission a great staff and uh, it's really because of their great work that I'm here to receive that award this week so you mentioned the story of John and a few other short stories. I'm just curious, are there any other specific stories of people who have come through your program and have been specifically impacted and that have honestly encouraged you to continue on in the work that you're doing? Well, one of the first names that comes to mind is a, is Jocelyn. So Jocelyn was a, uh, a needle drug addict living on the streets for years and, um, in fact, was on Skid Row at one point living in a cardboard box, ended up in southwest Missouri. Things didn't go any better. Uh, she ended up at our mission because she had 400 community service hours to do. Uh, so she had gotten in a lot of trouble, and this was the only way she was going to pay whatever the fine was. <clears throat> During that time at our mission doing community service, she came to faith in Christ, and uh, life began to change for her. And uh, she actually ended up going back to school. She got clean, went back to school, uh, got a college degree, went on, got her master's degree in counseling and social work, came back to the mission, is now full-time employed at, at our mission, which was her dream ever since she had come to faith at, at our mission. She said, I want to work here someday. And so she actually got a college degree and is now employed with us. One of the unique things about Jocelyn was a time when she was on a local uh, interview with uh, – it was a televised interview, and they were interviewing people who had given up food stamps. And she said – I, I need to let you know that uh, giving up food stamps was harder for me than getting off of heroin. And it was an amazing statement, but it's one, Rachel, that we have found to be true for many people. There is an incredible fear factor of cutting the ties when you're tethered to the state for support and then understanding your own capacity and potential beyond that tie. But Jocelyn did it, and she's flourishing today as a result. 
Thank you so much for sharing Jocelyn's story. We need to spread that far and wide and just talk about these actual results that you all are seeing. That's incredible. So we've talked about the emphasis that you place on outcomes rather than outputs, which is the antithesis to what many, so many in government see as they push more agencies and programs to fix problems. So what is your message? If you could say something to legislators, what would be your message to them to encourage them to fix this problem rather than being caught up in it? <laughs> yeah. So the word that comes to mind is enough, <laughs> but that's not probably constructive encouragement. Uh, but truly, I think what we've got to do, uh, let's, let's work together. Let's, let's, I would like to work with uh, leaders that do what I do and missions across America. See if we could get together. Let's get together at the table with some policymakers and say, okay, what can we really do to, uh, to restore civil society, to – to make sure that we're empowering the poor. to and, and I think what we'll find is that it would be good if policy just withdrew some of that lower-hanging fruit of welfare and government subsidy for the poor in local communities and allowed local communities to network together well and to do that job themselves before people are accessing state help. So that would be the one thing I would recommend. Well, James, thank you so much for being with us today in studio on the Daily Signal podcast. Thanks for having me. That'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. And please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts to give us any feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, the Leah Rampersad, and Mark Guiney. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.